The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we look at what's happening to science in the first days of the Donald Trump presidency, and what might happen if we don't take action in a world where science is growing increasingly political, whether or not we want it to be. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is John Dupuy, a science and engineering librarian at the Stacey Science and Engineering Library at York University in Toronto. And he can be found online at his blog, Confessions of a Science Librarian. John, I'd love to say that it's wonderful to have you back, but I feel like we're going to get really depressed in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> depression depression is, my, is my expertise and, <laughs> and not the mental health kind of depression. I was actually thinking. I was actually thinking the other day that you know, back we well, as you know, we did a bunch of shows on the Harper situation in Canada a few years ago, and I remember talking with Desiree on the show. It's like, gee, we always only call you when there's something really depressing. Why do we always just have to talk about depressing things? And we kind of switched gears a little bit, and you know, started doing those science book shows, and we started to do happy things. But now, now I feel depressed that we're back to depressing things. Yeah, well, we'll have you back again for the next year's book show. So, so we're not diving headlong into only depressing topics for you, John. We'll have you back to talk about exciting things, too. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. So for anybody who hasn't uh, been with the show or listening to the show for a long time, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of why you're here today, which is we wanted we wanted to bring you on to talk about the war on science that's uh, already started to kick into gear, it seems, in the United States with the new Trump administration. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of American listeners who maybe have not heard from you before who are wondering, why on earth did we bring a Canadian on to talk about science under the U.S. President Trump? Well, the whole thing that's happening with Trump is serious deja vu for Canadians. You know, if, when you think back to, I mean, it's almost, it's 10 years ago now, uh, 2006, when our own crazy conservatives got elected, the uh, Stephen Harper conservative government. Well, they, they were the same idea with Trump, uh, where Trump is beholden to various energy related special interests. Um, the Harper government, I think, had this vision of Canada as an energy superpower. And so part of that vision was certainly de-emphasizing and suppressing and muzzling any kind of Canadian government science, in particular, that had to do with climate or the environment. I mean, it, it affected other areas as well, but I think the, the real focus was, client, was uh, climate and the environment. And that's kind of where the Canadian experience is kind of useful, I think, for Americans to look at. We went through almost 10 years of this kind of back and forth struggle around science and in particular around climate and environmental science, which I think is what the Ameri what you know, what our American friends, our American brothers and sisters are uh, looking forward to over the next little while. And so I think there's, yeah, there's. There's obviously serious differences between the situations, but I think there's a lot of similarities as well. 
And now you particularly, John, we brought you on before because as a librarian, you are, I think, uh, uniquely talented at cataloging things. And back in the heyday and the height of what was going on in Canada during the Harper years, uh, you actually created a really comprehensive blog post kind of chronicling all of the different things that were going on in kind of one master post. And uh, it looks like you're doing the same thing again for the U.S., for sure, and that's and it's it's largely it's largely fueled by fury, and that was <laughs> that was certainly the case um, with the the Canadian Post. And when you know when I think back to and I started the Canadian one in 2013, in other words, well into the Harper era, right, which started in 2006, and it was uh, you know it was this this kind of recognition that something was going on. There was this consistent long-term story that was being told about science and nobody was and, – and, you know, so you, when you would read in the media, all the pieces were disconnected. And so what I tried to do was I tried to say, okay, there's all these things that are disconnected. If we list them, it becomes a story. You know, a, a kind of a weird, disconnected, listy story, but a story <laughs> nevertheless, right? It becomes this you – can, you can construct a narrative out of this list. And I think there's a lot of value. I think there's a lot of value for that. All right. So let's talk about what's going on in science in the U.S. right now. We are, what, three weeks? As we speak, about three weeks into the Trump administration, and you have already started to collect quite a long list of things that are happening, uh, concerns that are being raised. Um, so... I guess, I guess maybe the best place to start is probably the one that's going potentially to take the biggest hit, which is, uh, climate change and environmental science is already really starting to feel the pinch from, uh, some of what's been going on in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of, I think one of the big differences between what we saw in Canada and what we're seeing now in the States is just the pace and intensity of things that are happening. I mean, it really took four or five years in, you know, in the Canadian situation, you know, 2006 to 2013, so seven, you know, uh, that's quite a long time. It really took that long for, a, for, for really the Harper government to ramp up and start making real differences and, you know, concerted where you could really start to see that kind of concerted, dedicated effort. But here we are in the States. It's like, like you say, two or three weeks and there's already things that are, that are happening that are really serious. And, you know, and a lot of them are are these weird symbolic things like, um, you know, the taking the climate change off the White House website, um, you know, canceling that uh, climate change conference, which is going to happen anyways. But there's some there's some the, the it's a, there's a lot of the really deep things that maybe we're not going to see. So, for example, you know, the there's a lot of the Environmental Protection Agency uh, they're going to start reviewing things, uh, projects and data on a case by case basis. That's the kind of thing that can have really serious implications in the long term. And those, again, that's the kind of thing where you can have where there can be a delay of a year or two years or three years between the kind of subtle thing that they do. And then it's like, again, two or three years down the road, you're like, oh, my God were dead because of that thing that they did three years ago. And other things, like there's a regulatory and hiring freeze 
So reg- the regulations are amongst the most important things, and which we saw in Canada, right? These kinds of regulatory changes can be hugely important. And so no new regulations. There was a bunch of regulations that were rolled back already. So yeah, there's there's all kinds of things. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are that are going on. So uh, specifically with the EPA, because the EPA seems to be a a point that people are talking about a lot. So so what exactly has been going on so far that we know or that we suspect? I don't know if suspect's the right word, but there's definitely a lot of conversation going on about the EPA right now. Right. And I think, you know, again, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Um, So, for example... Again, this idea that the that all the EPA studies, uh, the data uh, and the studies must have to undergo undergo kind of a political review before they're released. So, I mean, that is actually kind of frightening because what that does is is it makes the um, it makes the science, it makes the data so directly beholden and and subject to political whims that that that's the kind of thing that again right is is the kind of thing that you're not going to see the true impact for to true impact of for for potentially months or years and you know there was again there was um the epa were ordered to remove their climate change webpage. so once again epa is going to be one of the key players in um kind of it well should be one of the key players in the uh fight fight against climate change and so that that's you know that's again another another really big another really big one again the trump ban of the various agencies from um providing updates on social media and to reporters again another huge uh another huge issue again and that's another one where there's huge resonances from from what we saw in in canada where the muzzling of government scientists was one of the biggest was one of the biggest issues we had to we had to deal with. One of the things we definitely had to deal with here in Canada with the the muzzling was it was taken very seriously. Um, there was a lot of problems of journalists not being able to actually get interviews or get information from Canadian scientists, in particular Canadian scientists working in any kind of environmental. Uh, department or environmental research. And any scientists who did give interviews without sort of running it through the several levels of bureaucracy in order to get it usually swatted down, they were actually um, uh, punished in, in various ways. And, and there were, there were costs to people doing those kinds of interviews. Are we seeing that already in the US? Is there any information about that? Do we are, are, cause there, there has been already some, uh, some rogue Twitter accounts popping up or some some rogue behavior that we're seeing either from just individual people trying to resist within those departments or from people sort of taking to alternative ways of trying to get that information out there. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if we've seen specific cases where we could attach a name to to some to a kind of resistance or a punishment. Um and again, one of the weird, one of the kind of craziest things that I think we're seeing with what's going on uh, in the states is how fast. Again, like I said, how fast things are moving. Stuff is changing every day. So, so I'm saying that I, I can't, I, I can't think of any names that are attached to this. But again, tomorrow there could be one, and it, which is something we never really saw uh, in Canada, where things would happen so, so quickly. I think for me, one of the, you know, in, is. 
one of the most important things that's happening in in that kind of um, muzzling realm is, I think, what we see with those uh, ro- the 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 rogue Twitter accounts and the social media, and I think that's that's all heading down the same route. I think we have heard little, you know, murmurs of people getting in trouble, uh, you know, uh, in particular some of the tweeting that went on at the at some of the national park services accounts right we we all recall the famous case of the badlands national park twitter account getting hacked and um tweeting out real information about climate change before it was shut down the official story was that was done by a former employee that that it was hacked by again i guess it was a former employee that still had the password um, and so that's the official story. Do I actually believe that's the real story? Uh, was it actually a current employee who, for whatever reason, had a Casablanca moment and started, you know, doing the Humphrey Bogart thing and actually trying to fight the good fight? I don't know. We'll, we'll probably never know. For me, which leads to me, you know, saying I think for me, the kind of theme song of the resistance is the Bruce Springsteen's Badlands. Is that the sorry, I'm not familiar with that song. <laughs> OK, you're too you're too young. For I'm old too young. People, for old people, the theme song of the resistance is um, is Bruce Springsteen's Badlands. And I think I think there's actually. You know, it's one of those songs where it, it seems like he almost, even though it's, you know, 30 years old or something, I think it's one of those songs that actually, I think, has a lot to say about what's going on now. So there's a, one, of the, one of the lyrics right now is, poor man wants to be rich, rich man wants to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Hmm. Does seem a yeah. little bit relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So like, again, like I said, I think uh, "Badlands" is one of those songs that that seems to be uh, so totally relevant now in a way that 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 seemed almost impossible to to comprehend. Sort of like the Simpsons seems to be in a lot of ways predicting a lot that's going on in the in the Trump world. One of the things that has been really interesting to watch in the last month, uh, in particular throughout January, was there there has been a concerted effort uh, from various groups. Um, I don't know if it's independently or if they're working together un- under some broad direction to try and archive and make copies of data that they that some people feel may be at risk in the Trump administration. So can you talk a little bit about the data rescue efforts that have been going on in particular with the US? Well, that's actually that's actually really interesting. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of work that's going on in that area. And I think the first the first organized project that we saw was actually uh, set up here in Toronto, the um, guerrilla archiving uh, efforts and th- that were they were working with the Internet Archive and and so the inter the Internet Archive are the people that one that run the Wayback Machine which 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 archives uh, the web in other words their project is to try and make kind of a copy of the whole web so that if you want to go back and see what something was like a year ago five years ago ten years ago there's somebody that that's actually harvesting and archiving the web 
And so one of their one of their projects is every time uh, an administration switches, what they try what they try to go and do is save all the government websites from the previous administration, with the assumption that you know all of these administrations, when they you know it's out with the out with the old, in with the new. And so what they've done mo- most recently is said, well, you know, it could be a little bit worse this time. And so let's work with a bunch of groups to try and identify some particular websites or data sets that are particularly in need of being archived. And that's what the, the, the Guerrilla Archiving Project did in Toronto is their, their, their task was to go through U.S. government websites, in particular, the EPA and other environmentally focused uh, agencies and identify either web pages with important information or data sets or other kind of information and say, aha, we found stuff that needs to be saved. Let's let's get the address of this thing and then we'll 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 send that address to the Internet Archive so they'll know to make sure that they save that uh, that particular uh, that particular website. And and so, yes, there is this whole data uh, uh, data rescue movement in the States. It's the EDGI that's running this. The the Environmental Data and Govern- Governance Initiative. And they've had probably at this, I think at this point, they've probably organized somewhere between five and 10 different data rescue events uh, across the states in a bunch of places like New York, Philadelphia, you know, a whole bunch, a whole bunch of different places. And they have a website. Uh, they do actually have a website where they where they keep track of of all the data rescue events that they had. And I think they're still doing them. It's a it's a it's a really amazing it's a really amazing project. So why is there a greater concern, or it seems like at least it's getting more media attention and more uh, uh, more concern than usual? If this is something that the Internet Archive does every year, why is there more concern this time in, in doing this fast and in doing this now and making sure we do it in maybe places that we wouldn't think of doing it in the past? Well, and, and again, I think that's because under the Trump administration, there is a particular fear that data about the environment or the climate is going to be is going to be lost. It's going to get targeted. Um, I think when you look back in the past, the changes from, you know, if you were, you know, if, if you were, if you were going to lose something, it was going to be a little bit more by accident than by on purpose. So in other words, every time there's a new government, they always go in and, you know, it, I think in Canada more than in the States, but the governments are always changing the names of the different departments. And so that means they need a new website. And when you, when you create a new website out of the old website, well, you always end up losing stuff. But a lot of that's just kind of, you know, more by accident and a little bit more, uh, a little, I don't want to say incompetence, but right, you're, you're doing a job and you're focusing on the new rather than the old. But I think the feeling is that with the Trump administration, they're going to target stuff and they're going to make it disappear. And so if they're going to target stuff and make it disappear, that means you have to move fast to rescue it before before it's gone. The hope there, you know, I mean, the hope uh, that I have is from everything we've been able to to see about the Trump administration so far, there's a shocking amount of incompetence at the top. Uh, And, you know, maybe maybe that's going to maybe that's going to help us. Maybe it'll take, you know, uh, there'll be plenty of time to rescue stuff before uh, they're able to, you know, uh, focus their attentions on destroying things. I don't know if you saw the news reports that apparently no one, you know, no one in the no, no one in the cabinet or whatever knows how to work the light switches in the White House. And so they're just they're having meetings in the dark because they don't know how to work the light switches. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I hadn't heard that. It's 
so you're thinking, okay, where, you know, when the, the, let's just say you're thinking to yourself, you know, thank God these people are so incompetent that it might take them a, it, you know, it might take them a little while before they get to the kind of detailed evil stuff. And, you know, and that's where, again, where I would contrast with Stephen Harper. No one would have ever, you know, the last word you would associate with Stephen Harper, uh, the that former Canadian prime minister for our American brothers and sisters, the last word you would ever associate with Stephen Harper was incompetent, right? He was, you know, to the extent that, that you know, Trump is kind of crazy and unstable, you know, Stephen Harper was crazy like a fox, right? Yeah. And uh, and that's one of the, that, again, that's one of the huge, I think that's one of the huge differences. Nothing that happened under the Harper, the Harper government was by accident. Everything was on purpose, right? There was a, there was a steely-eyed determination and, and an, and an, you know, uh, again, that, that kind of real attention, the Harper people had this the real attention to detail, right? Harper was a, a famous control freak. And I think with the with you know with the the Trump people, I don't think they have that. I don't think they have that yet. They you know the uh, I think a lot of the details are just escaping them. And that's where we have and that's where the the these data governance people and the data rescue people, I think there's an op- there's still an opportunity to be able to save a lot of stuff before before they're able to to turn their their evil you know, their evil eye on it. Do you think it is a a legitimate concern that aside from the stuff that goes missing, sort of that we can normally expect to go missing during a major transition or the sort of incompetent side, do you think there is a risk, a serious risk of there being targeted removal, kind of intentional removing or destruction of that kind of data? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We, you know, and certainly we saw, I mean, we saw, you know, not a huge amount of that sort of thing under the, you know, under the Harper administration. It was more, I think the, the, uh, with Harper, it was more, it was more deciding not to do things as opposed to destroying, yeah, as opposed to going, you know, finding data and destroying it. And, and I think also partly, you know, the early Harper years were kind of only at the beginning of the get everything online humanly possible era. So we're in a little. So that's the fact that we're in 2017 versus 2006. I think there's a little bit of a difference there as well. But yeah, I think I think I think people are legitimately very worried that uh, you know, in particular stuff that's in the Department of Energy or the EPA or the Food and Drug Administration. You know, all of these all of these really important really important areas stuff could stuff could just be disappeared. So one of the other areas that people are starting to get a bit concerned about and that you've profiled a little bit on your posts on uh, what's going on in science in the last month in the US so far is also there's some concerns around public health science. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's one of the areas that's that there are some, um, I think that that's one of the areas that, that I think we could see a lot of things. I mean, are we, you know, is that going to be one of the things that, that Trump is really going to focus on? You know, I don't know. Um, it, I, ju- I just don't know. I think what we're, you know, what we could see is, again, stuff, you know, what the, the area that we're seeing that's going to be under some, some kind of, um, I guess, focus is going to be, uh, the, I guess, the Food and Drug Administration and and those kinds of areas I, you know that's one area that those are some areas where i just i think it's just too early for for us to really know that much of what's going to go on 
I guess the same is true uh, of net neutrality. I know that net neutrality probably hasn't come onto a lot of people's radar, but there have been a few appointments that are making some people in the net neutrality fight a little bit concerned. For sure, in particular, um, Ajit Pai, and so he's the he's the the appointment the appointee for the head of the FCC, and he's he's got a long history of being um, of being anti net neutrality, and so yeah, that's something that's that's extremely worrying uh again we you know we just have to we have to see we have to see what uh we have to see where where that takes us um it's kind of early to know i mean so and again there's just so much weight behind the anti-net neutrality i mean that's a you know the anti-net neutrality thing you know the the people that are that would fight that are huge powerful and organized so so that's that's kind of an area that you know um it's a little unclear how far the Trump people would be able to get on that file. So I guess the one that's most uh, the, the piece of the science piece that's most at risk uh, here, it seems like I'm hearing from you and that I'm reading online as well, is anything to do with environmental and climate change science. That one does seem to be right in the crosshairs. And I presume that must be because of its conflict with energy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also one of the reasons that it's so much under fire is it's something that people are paying attention to. And it's so it's it's such a huge part of the public consciousness now that it's it's just easy to see and easy to kind of get a grasp on. Yeah, they're targeting that. So, yes, I think. And, and again, it was the same with with the Harper government. I think climate and environment was something that they that they really wanted to make sure that they were to impede progress, that they were able to impede progress. And that's why, you, you know, virtually all, all the cases of scientists being muzzled, when you dig a little deeper, it was the environment, right? I mean, my favorite, my favorite case is the Max Bothwell rock snot case. Only because we like to say rock snot. <laughs> Only because we like to say rock snot. But again, right, it was it was all about algae blooms. Mm. So rock snot doesn't sound like it's something that's about the environment. But when you dig deeper, well, it, you know, the whole basis of the research that Bothwell was doing and that was suppressed uh, or suppressed that, you know, what they did was is they made it really hard for him to communicate through just layers and layers of ridiculous bureaucracy. When you when you look deeper into the work that he was doing, it was all about the relationship between uh, algae blooms and climate change. And that, you know, it's just so they, these things are just so easy to spot once you kind of know what to look for. And to me, one of the things, you know, when we haven't had a chance to talk about this one yet, but one of the things that to me that, again, has the one of the biggest long term implications for science in the United States and, and in particular science in the world is um, the the refugee and, um, you know, travel bans from those seven uh, Muslim majority company uh, countries. But those can have that's the kind of thing that kind of, you know, it's 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 horrible for a for a wide range of reasons, but there are implications for science as well. So what are some of those implications that you see are, are most particular to science in the US? Well, in particular, and this is true in Canada, as well is you know for graduate schools the you know the the graduate school recruitment pool is is global and you know to have a if you want to be at the forefront of science and technology you have to be able to recruit good people from the whole world and and blocking people from coming into your country just because of where they were born or what their religion might be 
I think I think has serious implications. And we're already starting to see other countries saying, gee, if you know, if you can't get if you can't get into the States, come here. And there's individual universities that are saying, well, listen, if you're stuck and you need a lab, come here. I mean, one of the people running for uh, the, uh, to be the pri- uh, president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has basically said, if you can't get into the States, um, come to France. I mean, I work at York University, you know, probably one of the most uh, diverse institutions in the world. And I, I've, you know, and I'm, I'm the engineer, you know, I, I'm the librarian for the engineering faculties. I've probably had conversations with uh, with students from each and every one of those countries. And they're, you know, they're, they're sci- they want to do science, right? That's what their passion is. Uh, and they, you know, and anything you would do to prevent them from coming to your country to do the thing that they're passionate about is going to have that kind of long term impact on on the scientific capacity in, in your country. I definitely think one of the things that has really stuck with me um, about what happened in Canada that I think is a good thing to for me to keep in mind as I think about what's going on in the US is even if you sort of four years later, eight years later, like in Canada, um, the government changes over and some of those restrictions are lax. There's a lot of loss that just can't come back. So there's a lot of, you know, teams break apart. If the funding goes away, those people move on to other positions or other teams to do different types of research. You can't sort of put the genie back into the bottle in those situations. There, There is... A lingering loss within Canada from those years that is very, very difficult to rebuild if it can ever be rebuilt in the same way. And that's a long term project to try and fix that. So it does for me underlie the importance of trying to prevent as much damage uh, as possible if there is a sense that damage could happen. For sure, absolutely, and I think the the thing that that the, the biggest impact in Canada from that was the the canceling of the mandatory long form census, right? The the fact that you have this one year when they didn't have the manu- the, the mandatory long form census basically ruins all the long-term data forever, right? You have this one census where the data isn't the same, where it isn't valid in the same way, and that just that just destroys that kind of data continuity, which when you're doing serious social scientific research is just is just devastating. And hopefully, hopefully we won't. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if we've seen any scuttlebutt about, you know, cha- any kind of census changes in the States yet, but who knows? I mean, that was just devastating for Canada. Once again, I leave you a little bit more depressed than when we first connected. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll have we'll have more uh, a greater variety of 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 happy conversations in the future. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Keep us posted. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure we will have you back. Thank you. I always love being on the show. And if you want to learn more about John Dupuis or check out uh, some of the posts that he's already made uh, collecting information about the Trump war on science, we have links, as always, for you located in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, 
and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Katie Gibbs, a scientist, organizer, and advocate for science and evidence-based policies. While completing her PhD at the University of Ottawa researching threats to endangered species, she was one of the lead organizers at the Death of Evidence Rally, one of the largest science rallies in Canadian history. Katie co-founded Evidence for Democracy and now serves as its executive director. Katie, always great to have you back. Thanks for having me on. So first, really quickly, for people who maybe don't know, what is Evidence for Democracy? And maybe can you give us a a quick insight into when it was created and why it was created? Yeah, for sure. So Evidence for Democracy is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization in Canada that promotes the transparent use of evidence in government decision-making. So we sort of formed out of the Death of Evidence rally that happened in 2012, um, and that was sort of a, a large mobilizing of scientists around um, a number of anti-science policies coming out of the Harper government at the time. So we had seen a lot of funding cuts for science, government scientists being muzzled, policy decisions that just completely disregarded the evidence, um, and that sort of finally got to a tipping point where we organized a large science protest the Death of Evidence rally. And, you know, there was a huge, you know, huge amount of support for that rally. And sort of coming out of that, we wanted to keep that momentum going. And so we formed Evidence for Democracy and have sort of continued to um, to work to promote science and evidence-based decision-making in Canada. Okay, so given what's been happening in the first few weeks of the Trump administration, uh, there seems to be a desire from a lot of people to get involved, to protest, to resist, and to organize across multiple facets of the U.S. population. So what I really want to talk about today is is what makes an effective protest, because it seems like there are more effective ways to protest than some other ways. So in general, can you give us an idea of what makes an effective protest? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily one answer to that. That's a, it's a huge question. It depends so much on on the issue and the time and, and what exactly, you know, what change exactly you're trying to make. Um, you know, I think looking specifically at the at the organizing that's happening within the science community, I think it's going to be key for for them to stay focused on the science in this landscape of, you know, so many different groups organizing and speaking out that it's going to be key for them to um, stay sort of um, coming from the science community and with the science in the forefront. Um, Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's hard to say there, you know, I don't think there's one way um, to have an effective, an, an effective protest. And I think especially when you're talking among scientists, there, there are so many different ways to, to influence, you know, policy and politics. And scientists especially are, you know, they might not feel comfortable with that whole range. And so you have to sort of let people come come into it where they feel comfortable, whether that's, you know, maybe writing an op-ed sort of on one side of the spectrum and then, you know, organizing their own protest or rallies at the other end of the spectrum. So I sort of, you know, I don't like to say, you know, one is one is good and one is bad or one is better than the other. I think they're they're all needed. And different people are going to feel comfortable joining in at different places on that spectrum, if that makes sense. 
So I'm curious, back when uh, you guys were organizing the Death of Evidence rally, was there a, a stated goal for that effort? Was it to get a bunch of publicity? Was it to raise awareness? Were there some very specific goals set up for, for that rally? Yeah, I think we were we were trying to show sort of unequivocally that the scientific community was concerned at what was happening, and especially that there was sort of this this unprecedented level of concern within the scientific community that it you know sort of warranted something so unusual like scientists you know stepping out of their lab onto the streets for a protest. Um, and so you know within that was absolutely the you know sort of letting the Canadian public know what was happening, sort of educating them on what had been happening, letting them know just how concerned scientists were, um, and hopefully sort of showing the political people that people care about science issues, you know, that the scientific community was going to do something about it, and that, you know, these are issues that people people actually care about. So obviously, we can't uh, do a march every day or do a rally every day. So what are some of the other strategies that scientists maybe can look at or groups of scientists who are trying to organize some kind of activism around these issues that they care about? What kinds of strategies can, can they look at possibly utilizing? Well, I think I think that's just it is, you know, the march or protest is is just one one end of the spectrum and it it can be a very powerful tool and I think you know we saw from the death of evidence rally here in Canada you know I absolutely think that that was a tipping point that did lead to you know very concrete positive changes for science so I think it it can be a useful tool but you're right it's not something that can happen every day and so there you know there are a million ways that scientists can engage and it's been amazing to see already the number of and the number of different ways scientists in the US are organizing so you know there's i don't know if you've heard of the 314 action um which is a campaign to get scientists to run for office at different levels of government and apparently they've had like over a thousand scientists sign up and say like yes you know clearly what's happening shows that we need more scientists in office. You know, I'm willing to sort of step up and consider running. And they're hosting some sort of workshops and webinars on sort of, you know, how to get into politics for scientists. And I think that's, that's amazing. I would love to see something like that happen in Canada as well. Um, we've seen a number of the rogue Twitter accounts coming out of different government agencies and departments. And that's sort of, you know, one way for scientists to resist these policies that they disagree with, um, you know, even sort of going back on the spectrum to sort of, you know, there's just communication, like just committing to committing to not just communicating your science to a scientific audience, but actually making that effort to get your science and your research out to a broader audience of both the public and politicians. Um, there's you know, writing op-eds, which is, you know, really just sort of part of part of that sense of engaging in, in the public discourse and then making sure that scientific voices are are included in that. There's reaching out to, to your elected officials, you know, calling them, making meetings with them. You know, it, it, I'm not sure how the landscape is in the U.S., but I know in Canada, you know, scientists are, you know, very respected members of the community. And if for most scientists, if they email their MP and say they would like a meeting, 
they'll probably get one. You know, it's really that easy as sort of requesting a meeting. Um, and so, you know, meetings with your elected representatives. And then there's, you know, this sort of next step of joining in with this the March for Science. Um, you know, I think that's going to be a really huge moment uh, for science in the U.S. And I, I certainly urge scientists to to engage in that. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, probably events happening all across the U.S., not just the main march in Washington. And we've been in touch with the organizers and they are, you know, sort of planning to keep the momentum from that going so that it's not just going to be a one-day event. It is going to be sort of a longer-term, a longer-term movement, hopefully. This is, I, I find, one of the the questions that I've been asking more often in general when I see a, a protest like the Women's March or like the protests that were happening uh, at the airports in the U.S. once the immigration ban was uh, announced. Um is what's next after that? So there's a big women's march. There's, I don't know, 3 million people across the USA who show up. And then the next day, what happens next? It seems like that day is great, but if mm-hmm. nothing happens after that, it feels like that it hasn't accomplished that much. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think that's true. You absolutely have to keep it going. And that is an incredibly hard thing to do. That's not... It's not easy, but I do think those, you know, those marches um, do have sort of a symbolic value, value, and they are often sort of um, like an entryway event for people. So I know, at least from the Death of Evidence rally here in Canada, I heard from so many scientists who said that that was the first, like literally the first sort of like rally or protest that they had ever gone to. And they left, you know, so invigorated, you know, they felt that they had really done something important and it was sort of a a jumping off point for them into being open to different types of advocacy and activism. So that's sort of how I see these things, you know, both on a very personal level for people, they're a great sort of entryway into, you know, organizing advocacy, whatever you want to call it. Um, And then there's also from a media standpoint, um, they help sort of pull together a narrative. And I know from the Canadian example, the, the death of evidence rally was really, um, that was really its success is that up until, up until that point, there had been sort of, you know, a spattering of stories here and there about, you know, a scientist muzzled, a funding program cut. And what the rally did was really pull together all of these different cases into a really compelling narrative of what was happening to science in Canada. And I think that's that's part of the power of a symbolic event like this is it, you know, by pulling it together in an easy, easy to tell narrative, you're you're creating that story that makes it easier for people to repeat the story and makes it easier for what is happening to get out to more people. You mentioned before as well, some of the rogue Twitter accounts that have been popping up on and I'm wondering how, how, not effective, but how advised are our situations like this or rogue Twitter accounts, when uh, a scientist or a, a science department or a science group has been effectively uh, muzzled by some kind of policy. And to a broad case as well, just leaking information to the media in general. Are these kinds of effective ways to protest as a scientist or as a science community when uh, when important information is being prevented from going to the public, just getting it out there anyway? 
I think it's hugely important. And I think, I think we also have to really understand the, the personal effect that this has on government scientists, especially. And we saw this a lot in Canada. You know, we have to remember that the scientists who are currently working for U.S. departments and agencies, they're really facing the brunt of these policies. They're faced with these incredibly challenging, you know, very personal decisions of, you know, do I, do I put my head down and follow instructions and keep my job or, you know, do I follow my, my principles and consider leaking information and, and putting their job at risk? And that really takes a, that takes a toll, you know, emotionally and personally. So I think it's important for us to, to remember that in all of this. Um, given what we've seen just in the first week, it certainly seems like many scientists and um, agency staff, you know, really are going out on a limb um, and being willing to to leak information. Um, I think it's hugely important, you know, especially when there are communication restrictions in place. That's often the only way that information gets out. So it ensures, you know, primarily that the information actually get out, but it's also often the only way that you fully understand the extent of, of how muzzled, you know, the scientists are. And it's the only way for us to understand if there are other things taking place, like, you know, perhaps political interference in, in research, um, things like that. The only way for us to really know about it is for them to leak that information. And, you know, I think a really great example in Canada is, you know, you may remember there was this picture that surfaced of a dumpster full of books outside of a government science library. And not surprisingly, you know, this picture was, you know, splashed all over all over the news and really hit home what was happening to to government libraries across Canada. And if, you know, if that person had never taken that picture and posted it online anonymously, we we simply wouldn't have known what was happening. So leaks like that, while they can be, you know, very challenging for the, the people who do them, I think they're, you know, they're, they're brave acts and they're important acts. I was going to definitely note that I think there are a lot of scientists out there that feel trapped. Their livelihood and, and those of their schools, their teams and their peers are all tied to government funding. So to speak too loudly against the current government could put their funding at stake. And there aren't a lot of research jobs out there for people like climate research scientists that aren't government funded. So I definitely see like the rock and the hard place there. Yeah, it's it's challenging. And I think, you know, I think scientists who are in more safe, secure positions, like those who have, you know, tenure track academic positions, for example, you know, it's really their job to be there to support government scientists however they can, you know, whether that is just offering, you know, being there to offer moral support to them, um, but also being the ones to go out on the limb and talk about these issues, talk about the communication restrictions that are in place, talk about how devastating it is, talk about the challenges that their government counterparts are facing if they can't speak, speak about it themselves. And what about scientists who are working in the country but don't necessarily have permanent residency status or citizenship? Uh, science is an international industry, and many working scientists and researchers are in the U.S. on temporary visas, so that's going to complicate things too for them. It's yeah. I mean, I there's there's so many there's so many devastating outcomes 
of of the the travel restrictions that that they've put in place. You know, we're all still reeling from them. You know, I think they were quite shocking. And I certainly get the impression that the administration did not quite fully understand the wide ranging implications of a policy like this. And certainly, you know, science is is seeing a lot of negative consequences of this as well. And and I think again it just it falls to those of us who are in secure positions to be there to help in any way that we can. And I know you know, I've seen a few um, a few sort of emails and sign-up sheets going around where uh, scientists from all across the world have been signing up, basically saying, you know, they're willing to host a scientist who may not be able to get back to their their lab in the U.S. You know, they can come come work for my lab. You know, I know I signed up that I'm happy to host any scientists who might be displaced in Ottawa. You know, they can literally come stay in my guest room. So there has been sort of some coordination there happening from from the international community, which is really heartening to see. So sometimes it's not about putting yourself out there in a risky situation, but for those who are at greater risk or for those who are taking a greater risk to be there to support them where you can. Exactly, exactly. When you have worked with scientists in the past in trying to get them involved in activism, do you ever get any pushback on how um, science is supposed to be unbiased? I mean, is there a concern from some scientists that if they do become activists or join protests or movements that their research could become sort of tainted by their activism or that maybe their activism might make them less attractive to hire in the future? Yeah, I think that's a concern that that always comes up when you're talking about uh, science and advocacy. And, you know, I think there's sort of this this view that, you know, scientists almost, you know, need to sort of stay on the sidelines, so to speak, and and not really engage in in public policy discussions or in political discussions um, to sort of keep their their um, persona as a as an un, unbiased you know arbiter of facts. And I, not surprisingly, I disagree with that with that view. You know, I think we're all human beings. We all have biases. There's no such thing as as a as an unbiased scientist. The, the the power of science is not that us as scientists, as individuals, are unbiased. The power of science comes from the process of science and the peer review process, and um, our training. You know, we've been trained to be careful of our biases and analyze them and make sure they don't show up in our work. And so, that that is how the science itself ends up being unbiased. Hopefully, you know, science, even science isn't perfect. Um, but we're we're human beings, and we we have biases. Um, but I think we're also we're also citizens, and I think it's you know absurd to suggest that scientists should somehow sit out of of these important debates. And I think you know scientists more than anybody else need to be engaged in public debates. You know we're the ones who are trained in. In science, we're the ones who who fully understand and appreciate 
um, the role that science plays in our society and in our democracy and just how important it is that we're making decisions based on the best available information and how important it is that we have a, a citizenry who are well-informed and how essential that is for a healthy democracy. So we, we know all that and we appreciate all that. So I think we have a responsibility to stand up for these principles when we see them being abused. And I don't think that in any way, you know, takes away from from us as as scientists or or biases us in any way. So you mentioned as well before that there is right now being planned uh, a major protest or march uh, in the U.S. Um, specifically on the topic of science. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't I don't know a whole lot. It's still sort of in the planning stages, but they have picked um, April twenty second as their as their big day for for the march. I know there's a big one being planned for Washington, D.C., and then solidarity events happening across the U.S. and in Canada as well. Uh, we're working on planning one in Ottawa, and I know there's already been events um, sprouting up all across Canada, and we're sort of trying to coordinate all these different actions. Um, so our website, evidencefordemocracy.ca, is a great place to go if you're if you're looking for information on solidarity events happening in Canada and, and how you can join in and be a part of them. So if you're a scientist or not a scientist and you can't show up at the march or you feel like for you it's too risky to do something like that, what are, th- what are some other actions you can take to try and support or at least feel like you're doing something? Because that's, of course, one of the hardest things sometimes is that feeling of, of helplessness if you feel like you can't participate overtly. Yeah, and I mean, I've you know, I've already listed sort of some of the things that people can do. You know, communication, writing op-eds, contacting elected officials, um, and I think even you know, a lot of a lot of Canadians right now are feeling you know, sort of we're incredibly sort of frustrated with what's happening in the U.S. And you know, my message to Canadians listening is to not you know, now is certainly not a time to be smug. I think. Showing just how quickly things changed in the U.S. from, you know, the Obama administration to the Trump administration shows just how quickly things can change. And there's no reason that could not happen in Canada as well. So I think, you know, we absolutely need to be vigilant at this time um, and work on organizing here as well, rather than sort of taking for granted the progress that we've made in recent years. Um, yeah, so, you know, we've mentioned a few different sort of specific ways that, that people can, can help. And, you know, one thing that I think is, is so important is not, not shying away from having, um, challenging personal, um, conversations about these issues. You know, I know often we, people joke about, you know, unfriending people on Facebook who post things they disagree with. And I think that's that's the wrong approach. You know, we we keep living in sort of more and more in sort of isolated media bubbles where we don't actually hear from people who have opposing viewpoints. And so I think it's important that we don't just um, tune out people who disagree with us. It, we actually start having conversations with them. So I know, you know, even myself, you know, after this election, I realized that that was something that I could do and I needed to do. So, you know, for example, when I see friends of mine on Facebook posting 
um, anti-vaccine posts, for example. You know, I used to just go and unfriend them. And now I actually take the time to, you know, find some information and respond back to them in, you know, as polite of a way as I can and try to actually engage them in a conversation on these controversial topics. And so I think that's, you know, that is something powerful that all of us can do in our daily lives. And realistically, as much as, you know, we like to go go to protests and do these sort of big displays, it's those those kind of conversations with, with real people in our lives that are what actually change people's minds and move issues forward. I think as well, which you mentioned before was a big part of the 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 rally that was held in in Canada is that don't I think scientists sometimes are worried about uh, creating a narrative or appealing to emotion or appealing to something personal inside people because we just present a lot of facts. I know I tend to do this sometimes, you know, I present someone with a whole bunch of facts. And maybe in those moments, what's needed is something a bit more personal, or a, a story that you can tell, or some way that something's affecting you personally. So I feel sometimes that especially especially with people who are scientists and academics that don't always necessarily reach right for the stats and the the straight yeah. up facts. Sometimes you need to mix those in with with a story that you can tell or an appeal that is a bit more personal in order for it to reach people because it's it's very easy to just kind of scoff at facts. Sometimes especially these days it it seems yeah. like like facts don't always have the same kind of weight that they used to in the current climate. <laughs> well, when you have uh, the administration that runs the U.S. coming up with alternative facts, like clearly we are in a period of time where facts don't matter as much. And that's, that is part of what is so alarming. Um, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, what I often say when I'm talking to scientists and researchers is, you know, we like to look at the evidence. So let's look at the evidence of how people make decisions and how to change people's minds. And there has been a ton of research done on this, um, you know, really interesting books, like Don't Think of the Elephant, George Lakoff, and The Political Brain. Um, there's tons of research, really interesting research on how people um, come to conclusions on issues. And they don't, you know, they don't sit down and look at the facts and make a rational decision. As, as much as we would like to be believe it, humans are not rational beings. We make decisions based on emotions and values. And so as scientists, we need to learn that and come to terms with it and be okay with it. So often what, what we try to do and what I try to do at Evidence for Democracy is talk about evidence and science as values. You know, really, they, they are part of our values. And that's, that's okay. We can talk about them like that. I, I value science. I value evidence-based decision-making. These are things that I, that I care about. And so I think the more we learn to talk about science and evidence in an emotional, value-based way, the better we'll be able to, to resonate with people. Um, and I think, too, the more scientists you know, don't shy away from sharing their personal story, sharing their passion for their research, more, you know, the public will sort of learn to see scientists as, as people, because I think we haven't really touched on it, but that's, you know, a whole other part of what has led to our current situation is there's this sort of growing narrative of scientists as this other, you know, this sort of anti-elitist um, sentiment where, you know, the public has sort of been taught to distrust scientists. And I think the more 
the public sees, you know, really personal narratives of scientists and scientists really not being afraid to show the immense passion they have for their work, the more we'll be able to counteract that narrative. Katie, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on the show again. And do keep us posted as uh, there are more March details and more information that comes through. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more about Katie Gibbs or Evidence for Democracy or the upcoming Marches for Science in the U.S. and all over the world, as always, we have links to get you started in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 